You're listening to Unmask by Shio with your host, Chokwe Fajingbesi Balogun. I am still talking to a 200-year-old oak tree, and this is Unmasked by Shio. I want to start this second half of our talk going back to the issue of marriage. You're Nigerian. I'm Nigerian. There are two elephants in every Nigerian room, whether you like it or not. Those two elephants are tribe and religion. I used to be very naive in thinking that the elephant religion, you know, is not in the room when people are of the same faith. They're both Muslims or they're both Christians. But somehow you managed to have these two elephants in your home, but you just refuse to put them in your bedroom. So they are at bay. They're in a cage somewhere. Not only are you and your husband of two different tribes, the two of you are of the same Christian faith, but you're of two different denominations. How in the world do you tame these two elephants, especially as people who have children and who want to give their children the identity that they believe is great? That's a great question. And I actually really enjoyed preparing for this one because you're right. Religion and tribe do play a very big role in how we choose our partners. I'll start off by saying that um, like you, I really didn't think it mattered. It's about the person, it's about your personalities, your value systems. But I will start this off by saying that, so I'm Igbo and my husband is Yoruba. I'm Roman Catholic and he's Anglican. So let me just start off by being honest and saying that there are differences. There are differences in the way um, we are as a people and the differences in the way we practice our faith. However, we started off by agreeing that the kids would have both names. All, my ch- all our children have very strong Yoruba names and very strong Igbo names. So they are not confused in any way at all as to who they are in terms of tribe. Now, when we were getting married, my husband needed permission from my Monsignor um, to marry me in the Catholic church. And Monsignor said, I wanted the Monsignor to marry us. And he said he would do it on two conditions. One, that we would marry in the Catholic church. And two, that we would baptize our children Catholic. My husband had this conversation with the Monsignor and he had no problems with it. From the day I met this man, we both knew that our faith was a big part of our relationship. He was sort of experimental. He believed as long as there's God, he didn't really matter. He'd go Baptist today. He kind of experimented with church, but I always went to a Catholic church. And I think he liked that about me. 25 years later, we are still going to the Catholic church. What really was remarkable to me, because I've also spoken to women in my situation who are of different faiths and, you know, women who are Catholic and they marry Anglican men, especially here in Nigeria, and they go through the rituals and get married and then they get married and they don't want their kids to be baptized. My blessing, which may not be the norm, but I I take everything in my marriage as a blessing, is that this man kept to all those promises. You know, in spite of societal pressure, family pressure, we got married in a Catholic church. All our kids are baptized in the Catholic Church. But we are not Catholic. We don't say we are Catholic or we are Anglican. We are just people of very deep faith. And, you know, one of the things that I really admire about the way we have raised our children is it's whatever it is that you practice, it has to be a way of life. So when I was traveling for work, for example, or if, you know, he was with one child or if I wasn't around on Sundays, he would take the kids to mass. And he didn't have to because I wasn't there. He could have decided to take them to any other church. But this is how we started. We both agreed that a family that prays together stays together. We also agreed that there are rituals that are important. There are rituals that we do as a family that the children will grow with. And I think it's been really helpful in taming these two 
religion and uh, and tribe matters. You know, my husband jokes with regards to religion that um, he won't convert to Catholicism, even though he's been going to church, Catholic church for 25 years now. Um, but he does love my devotion to the Rosary and the Virgin Mary. And he says that my devotion to the Virgin Mary is important to his life because he sees the blessings it comes. So he's very okay with our relationship with the Virgin Mary. So yeah, it, it hasn't been without its struggles. It hasn't been without, you know, um, in terms of tribe, there were times where there were deep tribal divisions in the in the country with regards to, you know, elections. And, you know, we lost friends. People said really inappropriate things. But my husband and I are, we really are people first. We don't pretend that there are differences, but our differences have more to do with personality and the way we think than religion and tribe. Wow. Thank you. That's very deep. And again, we're unmasking things here. And Eventually, what we must as a people unmask in order to move forward, especially as Nigerians or Africans, is that there's only one race, and that's the human race. When you and I are standing in the middle of the street in Washington, D.C., nobody's going to say, oh, this one looks Igbo, or this one looks Yoruba. No, they're going to say there are two black women standing at the corner of the street, and that's it. So eventually, we need to begin to look at ourselves from the lens of being human beings first and foremost. And, you know, one thing I've also noticed about faith, about religion, as a person of faith myself, is that I don't think there's anything wrong with any other faith as long as you don't want to use your faith or your religion to harm me. And that's what people need to understand, that at the core of every faith is love and peace and unity and progress. The moment we start using that instrument for evil, for division, then we're going to have a problem. But I guess we're still at the base of the pyramid that Abraham Maslow created that, you know, it's hard for people to really elevate the conversation unless people elevate their stomachs. Woo, I'm really having a good time. And I want to, you know, start this um, segment, this second half, on the issue of children. One of my favorite books, Hands Down, End of Story, which for somebody like me who cannot finish one book, to say that I've read this book three times, it says something. It's called The Millionaire Next Door. And one thing I keep seeing every time I read that book is that children of parents who have means of any kind, whether middle class, you want to call it, or you say you're wealthy, children of such parents end up being under accumulators of wealth. In my opinion, they are kids who are poor, who grew up to be poor adults. How do you, as somebody who you know, you're of means, you're successful. How do you, you know, first of all, relate with that analogy? Is there anything in your life that makes that analogy so true? And has there ever been a time that you've been fearful that that would be the case with your children? And so how do you balance it to make sure that you don't raise kids who end up being poor? Deep question. And first of all, I'm going to get that book. I'm going to read that book. Um, I'll start this by sharing something my mother always told my siblings and I when we were growing up, she always said, no matter how high flying you are, no matter how successful you are as professionals in your, in, you know, in your careers, if you get your children wrong, that's a big fat F for failure. And that, from the moment I had my first child, that, that thing has always played in my mind. It's one thing that scares me. Are we doing the right things? Are we, you know, in this world of yeah, means and wealth and are we making the right decision, decisions where our kids are concerned? Yes, you want the best for your kids, as we know. What do we consider the best? Best schools, you know, they, but the one thing I always say to my kids is can never take any of this for granted. The fact you have earned nothing in your lives. You haven't worked, you have no savings. So you really 
cannot walk around believing that you are rich because you really are not. If you take your, your parents out of the equation, you're poor. Our job is to prepare you for a future that makes sure that this life that you live is maintained. And how do we do that? So going back to what I always say, you know, we are our parents. We are what we see. So my daughter see me, I work. I've never not had a job. I've been working since the age of 18. My kids have known me to work entire lives. It's not okay to just have a great job. That's, that's half the story. You know, something that I, you know about me is my boys are very domesticated. Mm-hmm. Being a responsible, wealthy, a rich adult is not just finance. It's your ability to be independent, to be responsible. My help, for example, when we lived in Nigeria and had nannies, for example, my kids were always very respectful to help because I always used to say to them, they work for us. They don't work for you. So you don't have any right to give them instructions or, or, or talk to them anyhow, or they are working for me and helping you. So even mm. the way my children interact with help is all part of this preparing them to be rich adults. My boys cook. I, you, you know, I think I've shared this story with you. When I was dating my husband, I really wasn't a good cook. And my mother-in-law would say to me, you know, you're very lucky because I raised my boys in such a way that no woman will hold them hostage over food. So my husband is an amazing chef, a much better mm. chef than I am. He's also imparting that knowledge on his boys. So my 11-year-old son is very comfortable in the kitchen. Just to wrap up this segment on how you prepare children for the future, kids can never live believing that their wealthy parents' wealth translates to them being wealthy. Kids must always, always mm. understand that all of this can be over in a heartbeat and that their wealth depends on what they do in the future. Wow. Wow. I, 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 don't even, I don't even have any words for this part because, you know, people in my generation are raising the most irresponsible adult. And it's very sad. It's very sad. You see people saying, oh, you know, I asked my kids to write a list for Christmas or to write a list for where they want to go. I'm like, they don't have any job. Anything I give them is a gift. And they must appreciate. They must appreciate. They cannot make demands when they don't have a job. When you get a job, start to make demands. Decide what you deserve to have. But as long as I'm paying the bill, I decide to gift you what I think that, you know, is a good gift. There was something I read in The Millionaire Next Door about this millionaire who said, I have created trust for all my kids, but I make sure that they don't access the trust until they're 40 years old because their spending habits are already formed at the age of 40. That's something to think about if you're listening to this. What do your children have access to? And how does it make them feel entitled? When a child feels that they have access to some money somewhere, what's the incentive to work hard? You mentioned that you've been working since you were 18. That's because your parents didn't tell you, oh, you know what? You don't have to work, Oak Tree. You have this house on the island somewhere. If you knew you had the house on the island, why are you working at the age of 18? So thank you so much for you know showing good example there. I want to wrap this up by talking about career. You are successful by all standards and your work experience, is enviable. Europe, America, Africa, you know, people, this is what people want. Do you in any way feel like an imposter? Do you feel unsure, unworthy? You know how people like me feel when we want to interview people like you? We're like, oh my God, am I going to say the right thing? How do you, do you still have those feelings? And if you do, how do you slay that animal? First of all, you know, success is relative. Um, I, I'm able to do the things that I need to do for my family and I thank God for that. But you know, success is relative. My passion is writing. It's what I do best, I believe. 
um, communicating is what I do best. Yet I've been in a job now for almost 14 years that has nothing to do with my passion. And every day I, I think to myself, this is not what you do. You're not, this is not your, 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 your skill. This is not your core. But what I find is as a communicator, every single organization needs to be able to communicate the goods or services or whatever it is that they're doing. And what I tell my kids is when I tell, what I also tell women who've asked me this question is what is your competitive advantage? I'm going to assume that for you to be in a job, the person who gave you that job saw something in you that makes them believe you can do the job. I've decided what my competitive advantage is and I bring it to the table Wherever I'm invited to a table, it's what I bring to the table and I make it an agenda item in every conversation, every boardroom, every table that I'm on. What I bring to the table becomes a part of the agenda. And I also wanted to touch on on this imposter uh, syndrome, as it were. One of the biggest lessons I learned um, very early in life that I think has guided me through times when I feel unsure of myself in in a job, I'm a biggest proponent of volunteerism. Um, volunteerism has been, I mean, I would say singly, I mean, I was very fortunate. I was always, I was the kid in school who the dean always knew there's anything, anybody, if you've ever needed a volunteer, I would be the volunteer. Long story short, I ended up working for one of the most powerful women then. Um, she's still quite relevant today, might have been a president. We're talking about unmasking. People might know who I am by now. So I interned for a very powerful woman in a very powerful place. And this internship came about because I offered, I volunteered my time. I worked for two years in a very powerful organization as a volunteer. But what happened as a result of that was it opened doors. And so tying volunteerism to feeling like an imposter. What I would leave women with or people with who are listening to this is don't worry about the money. When you are in a place, if you find yourself at a table and you feel unsure, find that thing that you do best. The money will come. Honestly, I had this big closing remark in my head, but somehow it just flew away because I'm like, that is a powerful way to just shut this down. Because a lot of people in our generation and the kids that we're raising in this generation are thinking about the money, money, money. But you've said, and rightly so, that find what you love, the money will follow. And I would say a very short story to back that up. In 2012, when President Obama was going for his second term, he was contesting against Mitt Romney. I was in Nigeria up till a month before the election. I came back to the US and I saw that the polls, they were neck and neck. Obama and Romney were neck and neck. I went to my boss and I said, put me in a battleground state because I was working for a labor union and so they could lend resources. I said, I want to volunteer for this election. This is important to me that President Obama comes back. And my boss said, okay, you're going to Ohio. I went to Ohio. I walked my behind off in Ohio. The president won. And because of that, I was able to get two tickets to the only inaugural ball that the president did for civilians in 2013. And I took my mom. My mom came from Nigeria to be there. I kept trying to tell her that we were going to the inauguration and she said, no, I don't want to line up on the street for the parade. I said, no, this is not the parade. Until we got to the convention center and she saw like people dressed up. She was like, are we going to see the president? I said, like, we are going to see the president. We're going to see Joe Biden. And we were there just because I gave my time without expecting something bad. So, you know, so anybody listening to this, I want to tell you that when I decided, when I decided to get over the imposter syndrome to do this, I said, I'm going to bring somebody who inspires me, somebody who mentors me, somebody who I look up to, because that's the only way I can kick things off. I'm sure you agree with me. 
that this woman, this woman is one unique oak tree wow. giving all of us positive shade. And I hope that you're taking something from what she has said, even if it's one thing, and that you've also, most importantly, unmasked the purpose and the energy that you've been keeping away from wow. the world. Thank you so much, Thank Tree. You. Thank you very much for being a powerful voice. If you have any last word, I'd like to hear it. Above all, um, treat people the way you want to be treated. Um, there is a God, not to bring religion into this, but there is a higher power. And I think if we walk a path believing that there's more to this life than we see, I think we're setting ourselves up for, for success. So thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Again, I will reach you again next week with another powerful guest. This is Unmask by Shiyo, and it has been my absolute pleasure and honor to bring this to you. Have a fantastic week. Thank you for listening to Unmask by Shiyo today. Your feedback and comments are very important to us. You, you can send questions, comments by sending an email to support at sheeo100.com or send a direct message to at sheeo100 on Twitter, Facebook, or on Instagram. Thank you and see you next week.